Hey there, friends. Pastor Paul Carter here from Cornerstone Baptist Church in Aurelia and the host of the End of the Word podcast. So glad to be with you again for another episode of Going Deeper. I want to introduce our panel. I'm happy to be joined today by Pastor Rob Brockman from Living Hope Church in Georgetown, Dr. Wyatt Graham from TGC Canada, and Dr. Jody Cross from South Shore Bible Church in Barrie, Ontario, Canada. Welcome to all of you. Thanks for being with us. Glad Thank to you. be here, Paul. Well, and Pastor Jody, this is your first time joining us, isn't it? It is, yeah. We used yeah. to work together a while well, ago. I know, yeah. <laughs> Dear friend to me, but new to the podcast, so glad you are here. Just one quick housekeeping item before we get going. If you haven't yet located a copy of the RMM Bible Reading Plan, you can find one at the End of the Word website. So just go to www.endoftheword.ca, click the About tab, and you'll find a link there that'll lead you to it. This podcast or this program uh, follows and reflects upon the previous seven days reading in the Robert Murray McShane or RMM Bible reading plan. So to get the most out of this program, obviously it'd be helpful for you to have a copy of that plan. All right, I want to jump right in this week to some of the interesting things that we have been encountering in the book of Genesis. In our first episode, we, we spent most of our time really talking about the first three chapters of Genesis, even though the first week of the plan has us doing Genesis 1 through Genesis 7. And right at the end of, of last week, we will have just begun to read the story of Noah's flood. And then, of course, this week, uh, most of our readers will have finished that story. And if they are first-time Bible readers, or even second or third-time Bible readers, they may have been quite amazed by what they saw there. Mm. Uh, the story of Noah's flood hits pretty hard. And, and I think for most readers today, because our connection to Noah's flood tends to come in children's Bibles. Um, you know, we, if you're my age, you, you may remember some kind of flannel graph version, uh, right? There's Evan Almighty might be interfering with your understanding of the text. Yeah. Uh, and, and then, of course, you know, we, we put it on baby mobiles and crib covers. So we have this very kind of immature, childish understanding of the story. And then when you actually read it in the Bible, it can be almost alarming. So... Rob, walk us through, what should we be seeing here as, as mature Bible readers? What are some of the main themes that, that we want to make sure that we've understood? Because these are, are themes that they're like threads that carry on throughout the whole canon of the Bible. So if we get Genesis wrong, we usually get the whole Bible wrong. So help us make sure we've got the flood story right. Yeah, and I think there are a couple of key features that we need to pick up on in this. Um, First, in the narrative of the Bible, we get our first real good look at God's wrath and judgment against wickedness and rebellion here in this text. I think part of the reason that we've kind of reverted to painting a beautiful ark and rainbows on the walls of our nurseries is because we got to soften that as humans. Like we get uncomfortable with seeing this kind of wrath and judgment. And as Christians, we don't get to do that. Like as faithful Bible readers, we don't just get to manipulate the scriptures to shape God into a more PG version. And I think that we struggle with God in this text because we've kind of missed some key things about us, our wickedness, our sinfulness. And we feel kind of like this wasn't deserved. Kind of like, whoa, God, take it easy, man. Like overreaction, you know, that's, I think that's kind of how we read this text. And I think there's some things I want to point out. Firstly, Genesis 6 tells us, and we talked about this briefly last time, that the world was utterly corrupted at this point. It was filled with unrepentant violence and continuous evil. Look at verse 
5 and 11, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And then look at verse 11. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and the earth was filled with violence. So humanity has turned away from God completely and is now utterly corrupted within six chapters. Well, three chapters, just completely. Um, There was one righteous man on the planet. It says it's Noah. Like, imagine that. Like, I just kind of think about that. Like, there's one human being on the earth who is righteous. Every other human being is bent on doing violence and destruction. And we see in verse 13, the crux of the problem, which says this, God's saying this, I've determined to make an end of all flesh because the earth being destroyed is the earth is being destroyed by their violence. So I will destroy them with the earth. This is what God says. Remember, humanity has been given a commission in Genesis 1. Uh, Genesis 1, 28 says this, and God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it and have dominion over the fish in the sea and the birds and the heavens and every living thing. God in chapter two puts man in to tend the garden. And now they're here killing everything, destroying everything, ruining everything, completely turning their back on their job that God had gave them. We're talking about a complete rebellion against the intention that God had put us on earth for. Um, Humanity had become unrepentant, unresponsive to God, and was just completely abusing and destroying all that God had entrusted to us. That's sin. Like that's the, that's what sin does. It corrupts and it devastates what God has created. And so I think that's the first thing we need to see in this text is just like the complete corruptedness that had happened and away from the original intent and job that God had given us as man. But then the next key thing, and you mentioned Paul, like these threads that stretch throughout the rest of scripture is this, that God spares Noah. There is a man who it says walks with God and God in his mercy does not condemn Noah with the rest of all the sinful people on earth, but he spares him. And I think a lot of people really struggle with this, like kind of this juxtaposition, like how, how could God condemn so many people and yet have mercy on Noah? Why didn't he have mercy on those people? Like, why does Noah get mercy and nobody else gets mercy? Like, isn't that a contradiction? And this is where I think in our reading, when we hit Matthew 11, I think there's an interesting thing here that I want to point out too. Matthew eleven twenty nine 29 ends with Jesus saying that he's gentle and lowly, right? It's like, oh, come to me. I'm gentle and lowly. And it's this wonderful, beautiful picture of Christ. But earlier in the chapter, he's pronouncing woes against Chorazin, against Bethsaida. And he's saying, it's going to be worse for you than it was for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment. And why? Why is it worse for them? And he says this um, in Matthew eleven twenty, 20, because they didn't repent. Because he came to them, Jesus came to them, presented himself to them, preached to them, and they were unrepented. He had come with the gospel of grace, and they were unrepentant. And so for God, what we see in the story of Matthew here, and what Jesus is saying, and what we see in the story of Noah, is this unrepentant rebelliousness before God, in light of his mercy, in light of his grace, that incurs God's wrath and his judgment. Noah received mercy because he had faith. Hebrews 11 tells us this. Noah had faith. He believed that God 
was good. He trusted God. He lived by that faith. That's the difference. Habakkuk 2.4, the righteous shall live by faith. So ultimately, this is a story and a picture that really prefigures Christ. It gets us looking to the gospel. This is looking to the cross. The story points us to God's mercy for sinners um, and the ju- God's judgment against people who reject Jesus. For those of us who trust in Jesus like Noah, we are saved from the waters of God's wrath against sin not because of our righteousness, but because of God's goodness. So when we look at the story of the ark, it's not about how big was the ark or, you know, how, what's, how much did the flood cover the earth? Was it a local flood or a global flood? Though the point is the bigness of our sin and the bigness, the greatness of God's mercy. That's, those are the key things in the story, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Martin Luther, or Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, I meant to say, he has a great line, and this isn't exactly how he said it. He said it in a couple of different places, and I'm putting them together. But he said, basically, we read the Bible to learn about God, to learn about ourselves as human beings, and to learn how God saves us through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. And there's a sense in, in, in which that would be a pretty good three-point outline for preaching on Noah's flood, right? Like, yeah. Tell us about God, that God is holy, and, and that he is patient with rebellion, but not infinitely patient, not forever patient. Patience comes to an end after, you know, times of warning. Uh, he's holy, he's, he's patient, and mm-hmm. he's merciful. He provides a way of escape. Um, but but he's, he's just. And, and when that patience is exhausted, when, when the invitation has been offered and rejected, the door closes, the rains fall. And, yeah. and it is a terrible thing to fall into the hands of a living God. Yeah. So we learn a lot about God. We learn a lot about ourselves. Oh, I forget which translation it is. Part of being my age is I've now read the Bible in uh, different translations at different stages of my life. So I can never remember where I remember this from, but one of the translations says uh, about the inclinations of the human heart, that the inclinations of, of the human heart were only evil all the time. Hmm. Uh, I think that might be the NRSV. Um, there's, there's a sense in, in which we can reach lows of depravity that necessitate responses of divine judgment. Yep. Yeah. Uh, so before we move on from those two things, what we learn about God, what we learn about ourselves, panel, you want to jump in and flush out anything we missed? Oh, why your uh, your mic is off. You you're supposed to be the tech genius here. I, I am. I just think it's useful to repeat what you said that Noah preached righteousness. I mean, there's a there's a long period of time where there's opportunity to be saved in the ark of salvation. So God's wrath is wrath, but it's also a wrath that follows a long time of patience. Yeah. And I, I think those two things are sometimes, um, they're both affirmed, but sometimes misunderstood. So God for long ages passes over sins done in ignorance, but now he's calling everyone to repentance. Like there, there's a transition that happens. His patience is meant to lead us to repentance. Romans, mm-hmm. I think two, four says. And so I think wrath, sometimes we view, and we can view it as just bad and evil because God's so mean, but you have to realize God is calling and waiting and patient for a long time. And just as any father knows, if your child, you can be patient with your child, but if he's doing evil, at one point you do have to step in and stop him. Yeah, the so, patient part is, is really interesting. Now, I just throw this out. I should have warned you guys. I usually give you the heads up as to what, what questions I'm going to ask you so I don't you know, put anybody on the spot. But uh, in, in the early part of the Noah narrative, it, it mentions God saying that he's going to limit um, and one of the things he's going to do to limit human evil is number their days, 120. 
most commentators understand that to, to mean that the human lifespan is going to be gradually reduced. And we certainly see that on the other side of the flood. Some understand that, though, as meaning that God has set the clock uh, 120 years and then the rains will fall. Where, just out of curiosity, where do you guys fall on that? If you have a thought, you don't have to have a thought. Hmm. I think for me, I've always understood that as the years. And so that we you were like you pointed out, we do see these years kind of coming to a coming shorter and shorter. Now the problem is it doesn't happen immediately. It takes time and yeah. limits. And hey, well now I don't live to 120. So what's the deal? Like yeah. what am I after 40 years? But uh Yeah, that's how I've, I've seen it as well, chronological. Yeah. Yeah, the idea that it's, that it's a clock uh, towards the flood is a minority opinion. You, you stumble across it in the odd commentary. Hmm. Um, but regardless, there, the, the lengthy process of building the ark is itself a manifestation of God's um, patience and duration. Mm -hmm. that, that this is, this is, God is never, God never has temper tantrums. Uh, he, didn't, he didn't look down one day and be like, whoa, what is going on there? And, and send the flood. Yeah. There was a long, slow buildup. And, and, you know, when Peter thinks back on the flood in the New Testament, that's one of the main points that, that he draws, that, mm. that don't, you know, don't be led astray by these scoffers who are like, whatever, you know. Uh, God said that a long time ago. He's forgotten. He's moved on. No, 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 no. God's a crockpot, not a microwave. And, yeah. and he, he, he's working. With, is that blasphemous, Wyatt? I, I, <laughs> no, I like it. I, <laughs> that's clever. Right? Oh. Don't write that down. Don't tweet that. But uh, God, God is working this the slow plan, and and that's a yeah. that's an extension. That's a manifestation of yeah. In in Second Peter, actually, we're meant to take comfort in the fact that um, in in this story, because God will defend us from evildoers and wicked people, and that's kind of the context is the defense of God for His people. And so you can read this story pretty like, you know, well, grimly, like God killed all these people and he saved Noah. And there's a picture of our salvation. But there also is a picture of God's sovereignty and protecting his people and his care and his faithfulness to his covenant people that we also see that Peter draws on and reminds us from in Second Peter. Yeah. And in First Peter, uh, he, Peter obviously was fascinated with this story, right? Every time I wrote a letter, this, this kind of works, it in. This kind of works its way in. In First Peter, he's more interested in how baptism is a picture of how God saves us. Mm. So, you know, we, we talked about how Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones said that we read the Bible to learn about God, ourselves, and how God saves us. Well, apparently, according to Peter, when we read the flood story, we're supposed to be learning something about how God works in salvation. Uh, so I'll, I'll read to you. I'll, I may uh, truncate this. It's a fairly long reading. The key line is in verse 21, but um, he talks about how... Uh, the, the spirits, uh, Christ was proclaiming in the spirit to those who were formerly did not obey in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. This is 1 Peter 3, 20 now, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Here's the key line. Baptism, which now corresponds to this, or sorry, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So Peter says, you know, baptism has been designed, uh, as it were, uh, to, to tell the same story or to uh, make use of the imagery of the flood to give testimony to the means of our salvation. So uh, I have preached on this passage at baptism services before. I'm sure you guys probably have too. Uh, for our first-time Bible reader, uh, interested in how the Old Testament shows up again in the New Testament and how the New Testament makes use of that. Unpack that little bit of typology for me. How, how does Noah's flood 
illustrate in advance our salvation through Christ? I'll throw that out to the panel generally. Yeah, I think this is thanks for this one because it's one of the most highly debated passages. <laughs> like how well, people this part, though. It's the previous verses that are debated. That's why I well, it's true. Well, uh, yeah. So the whole section seems to be like, you, cause you got to get the logic and you're going, what the heck is he saying? You know? So I can yeah. understand. Um, I think the majority kind of view here is typically how, you know, Peter is in the context is highlighting Christ's power and victory over these kind of demonic yeah. forces. And in Noah's day, you have, you know, we read about the sons of God, you yeah. know, sons of man and the women. And, and there's a question is, well, are these angels or these demons or are, are these people from Cain's line? There's a bit of a debate there. But the whole idea here is you just have this increasing kind of demonic wickedness. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and Peter is talking about how we're going to be reviled. Just like Noah experienced reviling, just like Christ experienced reviling, we are, Noah becomes a model for us, showing us how Christ will protect us and guard us, even against these kind of demonic powers and spirits, as you did in the time of Noah. So when we get to this baptism text, baptism is the, the way that I understand it is baptism symbolizes the death right, and the resurrection we experience in Christ, the new life that we experience in Christ. And it's seen in this story of Noah as well. Just as Noah was saved by the waters of the flood, we are saved by the waters of baptism, meaning the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And so even in the midst of demonic oppression, even in the midst of people and scoffers yelling at us and corruption, just like Noah, Christ saves us and is victorious. So I think the point here, the way that I understand it, and guys, you can chime in, is that just like Jesus suffered and rose, like Noah suffered and was saved on the waters, we are saved from the wickedness of sin around us through the resurrection of Jesus, through the waters of baptism. That's how I understand this, this passage. Yeah, that's good. You went, you went even wider and, and deeper into the symbolism. You're, and I love it. I love Because I think you're right. I, th I think given what Peter says in his second letter, this, this is a comment about how God protects us and hides us and saves us from uh, the scoffing of men and the oppression of demons. Uh, maybe my approach is maybe even a more pedestrian or simple approach. When I make use of the story to explain baptism, I often just talk in very pedestrian terms. I say like in the same way that Noah and his family had to hide themselves in the ark. So too, we have to hide ourselves in Christ. Mm. And that if we are in Christ, then we will be saved from the waters of judgment. Um, and, and that just as Noah and his family came out through the waters of judgment into a new creation. So too, we, you know, come out through this baptism into, into new creation life on the other side. All of that is true. I think it's, it's both and anything you guys want to add to our composition. Can, can I even be simpler? <laughs> oh, let's do it. Let's race. I, I, I think Noah's Ark points to our salvation in Christ. And I think baptism points backwards to our salvation in Christ. So one is pointing forward. Yeah. Noah's Ark. It's a prefigurement. Uh -huh. Baptism is a memorial pointing backward. Now that Both wouldn't of them be have... though. That would, I mean, in the sense, because the, the the same imagery is is being maintained throughout. But you're you're talking about the the forward faith versus backwards faith. Yeah, I'm just thinking because baptism and Noah's Ark are both mentioned. Just like a really simple way to put it is Noah's Ark. The story in Genesis points forward to our salvation in Christ, where our baptism points kind of backwards to remember our salvation in Christ. Yeah, that's great. I, I use very simple, but no, no, I use the the phrase all the time: illustrations in advance to explain how Old Testament stories function in a mm. community. And, and, and that actually also applies uh, to sacraments or ordinances 
because ordinances are the gospel made visible, right? So they're illustrations after the fact. So they are, you're, you're right to draw a connection there between the, the ark, which is an illustration in advance and baptism, which is an illustration after the fact. It, it could be useful just to note too, just we read it, but baptism now saves us. And then he yeah. clarifies not the removal of dirt from the flesh. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, what I think he means, what he's trying to clarify there is it's not the act of baptism alone, the right. mere washing of water that saves, but what he says in verse 18, it's, it's Christ, verse, yeah, 18, Christ who died for us, the just for the unjust. Yeah. No, yes. Without faith, neither the illustration in advance nor the illustration after yeah. <laughs> is any yeah. reality, right? Like I always tell our people when I make use of the story of baptism, if you come up after the service and steal a little water from the tank and splash it on yourself and your family, you've done nothing, <laughs> right? Like yeah. with, with, this is not magic. Without faith, there's, there's no reality here. Mm-hmm. Right. Oh, good. I, think, I think we can see too, Paul, in that is just the whole idea of judgment that the waters represent the judgment with Noah, obviously that the world was being yeah. judged and in the baptism in first Peter, it's the judgment that Christ endured, as you said, that we are hiding in him and it's his yeah. judgment that we trust in, not the mechanics of it. Yeah. Uh, and I think it's just really important to remember that there was a judgment in, on Christ. I mean, what he suffered and died so that we would be rescued and brought through. Mm. Well said. Well, uh, before we get in the, between the flood story and the Abrahamic narrative, which obviously takes up the bulk of the book of Genesis, there's um, sort of 11 chapters of what are sometimes called prehistory narratives. Uh, some people don't like that terminology because it sounds like you're questioning the historicity. Um, so w- whatever. There's 11 chapters of, of general story. And then there, the, everything after that point focuses in on the family of Abraham. But there's this little hinge uh, between the flood story and the Abrahamic narrative that we often skip over without thinking a great deal about. And it's the story of the Tower of Babel. Mm-hmm which actually I think is far more theologically significant than most new Bible readers would realize. You might mm. not feel the significance of the story in your first time through the Bible, but after you've read Acts 2 a couple times, and then you mm. read Genesis 11 again, you're going to go, wait a second, am I supposed to be connecting these dots? Yeah. And, and I think we are. Uh, I, I think these, these stories are connected. So uh, just to save time and be massively efficient, if possible, I'm going to fire out some rapid fire questions about the Tower of Babel, and you guys can take them however however you want to. Okay, here we go. And I'll, I'll give all six questions and then you, you fire at will. So question one, did this story actually happen, the Tower of Babel story, or is it intended more as a sort of moral or theological parable? Question two, are cities good or bad? Question three, is technology good or bad? Question four, what is race, or if you prefer, what is ethnicity? Question five, is unity a good thing or a bad thing? And then question six, how does this story relate to its obvious counterpart in Acts 2 and the day of Pentecost? Uh, All of those themes emerge out of this narrative, so fire away and explain any one of those you want. Not all at the same time. Okay, I guess I'll go first. Uh, <laughs> I think it happened, and it's also a theological truth. So it can be, it's both. <laughs> it okay, historically happened. I hear that, because that's gold. Uh, people sometimes feel like if, if, if they believe that there is some kind of typological value, that they're undermining the historicity of the original event. No, something can be a historical event and a typology, right? It, it, there could, to use F.F. Bruce's terminology, uh, there can be a primary and a plenary meaning to a text, right? Mm. Yeah, I think it happened in real history. I don't think it includes every fact whatsoever because it's intended not to do that, but to tell us exactly what we need to know. 
and what it does is vital, important, and real. Are cities good or bad? I think that's in the context of Genesis 4. You have cities being built to run away from God and to create your own culture. You have Lamech and all that kind of stuff happening there. So in the context of Genesis, cities are viewed so far as places where rebellion happens. I don't think it's a judgment on cities as such, but in the narrative, it is a judgment on why people build cities and towers. And of course, the tower itself is to go up to heaven and to elevate humanity. So is technology good or thing? Let's go back to that for a second, because part of why the city is judged in this story is because they were supposed to scatter into the whole world, right? They were supposed to go forth and multiply. And they said, no, let's cluster and enjoy one another. So, you know, there's a sense in, in, in which it, the city in this, case, in this case represents blatant disobedience mm. to the command of God. Uh, but it is interesting, though, how often in the Bible choosing to live in the city. Well, even in, in one of the stories uh, we encounter in the Abrahamic narrative with Lot, Lot first lives near the city, then he lives in the city, and then he's in the soup, right? Mm. Uh, and, and so there's, there's some thematic cohesion there. All right, carry on. Oh, yeah, I can go. Uh, you go, Jody. Sorry. You want to take three? I'll jump in on three if you want to do three. I, I love that you should take. I think you should take three. <laughs> Technology, good or bad? Yeah. Uh, this is a generational question, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, th the overall theme, overarching theme in 11 is just the, the pride and the autonomy of humanity against God. And their abilities, obviously, they've, they've discovered how to make bricks that are strong and better than stone. And so they're going to make this tower, which means that we have this technological ability, which makes us pretty smart and pretty strong, pretty secure. And they're entrenched. Obviously, there's an entrenchment with a, a people group. They're coming together and they're banding together. They're, they're creating a refuge for themselves. And not only that, but they're creating a name for themselves. We'll see in, in a minute as we talk about Abraham that, you know, whose name is going to be made great in the world. It's, it's the name of God through this na great name of Abraham. And that's one of the things that stands out in 11 in verse four, it says, we're going to make a great name for ourselves. So mm. uh, technology, ability, skillfulness is a tool that they're going to use for, for pride and uh, for their own, uh, exalting their own autonomy against God. So, you know, that's the thing with technology. We're actually using technology in a modern sense right now, and uh, we're thankful for it. So I think it's the attitude that you have about the skills and the tools that God gives you to build something is the end product is what are you building? What are you building it for? And what's the motive behind the reason that you're, you're building something and who do you give credit to at the very end? So technology, it's a tool used for the right purposes uh, for the glory of God to make his name great. Let's keep using it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think, I think there's a warning in the text that, that technology can give us a false sense of our own importance and our, a false sense of our own autonomy, that it, it can be used to, to drive a wedge between us and God, uh, mm -hmm. that we can see, you know, and, and you can see that with medical technology. As, as medical technology improves, we pray a little less, uh, we, we fear a little less, we think a little less about death and judgment. These are things that give us a false sense of security and godness um, that, that can be a factor. Now, as you said, that doesn't make technology bad any more than it makes cities bad, but it, it is a, it's, it's a danger to be aware of. It's a factor mm -hmm. to be aware of. Yeah. Anybody want to jump? Sorry, go ahead. What do we have that we have not been given? I mean, you know, that's the thing, right? Um, if we have technologies, if we create technology that came from somewhere. And so ultimately you've got to, you've got to properly look back and where the skills and the resources came from in the first place. Mm. 
Anybody want to tackle the race and yeah, the ethnicity issue? I think for me, um, clearly, the original command was for mankind to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And I think implicitly within that, um, clearly, seeing how Babel, they don't do that, God creates different peoples and nations and kind of by the spreading of language. And so I would see that race or ethnicity um, is a product of um, God's command to uh, to mankind to be fruitful and multiply. In fact, even in the completed, and, and, and we get to Acts 2, where we see the kind of reversal of Babel, but not the reversal of nations, not the reversal of peoples or races or ethnicities, because at the end of Revelation 22 or 21, it says, hey, uh, all the nations are coming into this wonderful Jerusalem. And there are still, it sounds like there's still nations, there's still culture, there's still ethnicity, even within this eternal, wonderful city. And so I think um, ethnicity is a beautiful thing. Culture is a wonderful thing. God made it. He desires us to grow. But there is a unity in Christ that ultimately will be seen. And we will have a, a unity that we don't have here on earth yet, um, sometimes the local church can really reflect that kind of unity. If you have a multicultural kind of church, it, it's a beautiful thing. But we're really going to picture that kind of Revelation 21 when we're all earth has been remade, you know, new earth, new heaven. And we are all in Christ, united in worship of him in the, in the great city with his light kind of spreading over all the nations and calling us to. It's a wonderful, beautiful thing i think that we get grasps we get pictures of right now and clearly racial ethnicity conversations on earth are flawed and sinful um, but they won't always be yeah what, what what i think is interesting to the first time bible reader uh is that here we have a story of engineered disunity mm -hmm. divinely engineered disunity right like people everyone was getting along everyone was committed to a common project you would think that God would be up in heaven clapping, going, finally. Yeah. Uh, instead, he comes down and he engineers confusion and disunity to, to send people off. And, and, and then we sort of discover that's, that's a provisional disunity. Uh, there is a sense in, in which that is um, obviously overturned and reversed in some sense. In the Pentecost event, uh, it, it, it says specifically that they were, they were speaking in these different languages. People in other languages were, were all hearing together the same unifying message of the gospel. And, and we assume that, that tongues, however you understand the gift of tongues, I, I think what everyone would agree is that is, it is in some sense a prophetic sign about the future unity of humanity in Christ, a unity that still accounts for ethnicity mm -hmm. and, and tribes and nations to some extent, tribes that are united, nations that are coming together in the worship of God through Christ. Mm -hmm. um, but um, there's definitely something different. In fact, theologians will sometimes talk about Christianity as the third race, right? Neither Jew nor Gentile, that it's, that it's, it's something new. It's the new humanity that still includes a diverse ethnicity, but. Mm -hmm. Well, Paul in Ephesians too, yeah. as well, right? Jew, neither Jew nor Gentile, but one new human, human being. I, you know, I'm reminded of Galatians 3.28, and I think sometimes we're afraid to use that passage because it gets misused in other yeah. contexts, <laughs> but the idea is that you know, in the most basic binary, men and women, we still have a unity in Christ, despite right. those differences being here and biologically true. And therefore, I think it's important to realize what Rob was saying, that our basic and essential unity is in Christ, but we can still celebrate those differences that we have. I think sometimes there's this idea that you should be kind of colorblind yeah. and not notice those things. 
And yet this is God's wonderful beauty that he's spread across the world by making us look different in shapes, sizes, and colors. And all of this is beautiful and should be recognized for what it is. Yeah. Well said. Amen. All right. Well, let's, uh, let's move on a little bit and get into the story of Abraham. Abraham is often called the father of faith, not necessarily because he was the first person to have faith or uh, not because certainly not because he invented faith, but because his story so perfectly illustrates faith. Uh, Abraham, in in a sense, is like the storybook of of faith, and God uses his story to teach us a great many things about what real faith looks like. So we got into that story, uh, Jody, this this week. I wonder if you could maybe, uh, looking forward, you know, having read the story many times, having reflected on it, what are some of the highlights that we either have encountered or are going to encounter in in terms of the contours and realities of faith through Abraham's story? Mm-hmm. Well, the first thing I notice about Abraham is that he is what God is doing to uh, fulfill his redemptive plan. So what he started with Adam in failure, what then he passed on to Noah in, in just in terms of being fruitful and multiply, he says the same thing to Abraham. So God's going to start over again with Abraham, and he's going to be a big part of God's redemptive plan. So obviously he in the scriptures is seen as someone who is a person of faith. We see that in uh, Romans chapter four, these great verses that he believed God even though his body was as good as dead. Yeah. We see that in Hebrews chapter 11. He takes up a lot of real estate in Hebrews 11 in terms of looking for a city, trusting in God. And so there's a lot of things that, that are not going well for Abraham in chapter 12. His father dies, his brother dies, and then God calls him to leave his homeland and uh, to go to the country that he's going to show him. So faith really in his life has walked out. It's lived out in terms of leaving security leaving ethnicity, in terms of leaving his people, leaving his culture, uh, leaving his family, and going to a place which, you know, would be a big enough challenge for us, uh, except God says, I'm going to just lead you. I'm not going to actually tell you where you're going. I'm just Start walking. Just details go. will come. <laughs> yeah, details will Just go. Okay, Lord, like, where, where am I going? And so, you know, we don't have any sense of who God was to him prior to chapter 12, except that we know that he believes and, and then he obeys. And obviously there's the key with faith. It's obedience. He hears God's word. He listens and he obeys and he goes and he takes his family with him and he takes a lot with him. And obviously the promises that God makes to him are, are absolutely astounding. Here's a guy who's going to be a, a nomad. He's going to be a wanderer who knows where. And God says, I'm going to give you a land. And here's a guy who at this point is um, 75 years old and he's got no no child. He's got no uh, son, but God says, I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to multiply your descendants. So there's a big gap between who he is, his experience in life, his condition in life, and what God says. And he believes God, and it is credit to him as righteousness. And um, so in his vulnerable state, uh, he trades his security of home. He trades success, just kind of staying put where he is, being entrenched. And God is reversing the effects of the fall as Abraham, and through him, his seed is going to spread to the earth. And obviously, that is looking forward to Christ and the church, and the uh, the gospel is going to go to the ends of the earth. And through Abraham, all the nations of the, the world will be blessed, and nations of the earth, and we understand that through Christ and then through the church. So um, Abraham, as a, as a model, as you said, he takes up a whole bunch of chapters, I think, from chapter 11 to chapter 24. There's a big Abraham story. There's a lot of successes. There's a lot of failures in there. But one of the things that we see even when Abraham fails in faith, 
that God unilaterally makes this covenant that he says, you know, I will fulfill the terms of the covenant. We see that in 15. And so I think the um, encouragement for us is that as we trust God's word and believe his promises, even though we wait, and even though in in some cases we don't see them fulfilled, uh, the challenge is, and the scripture record is that, that we can trust God's promises. They will come to pass. We talked about that earlier. God's not slow in keeping his promises, but he's, he's faithful. And, um, you know, God will, in perfect faithfulness, work out his plan, even though we can't see it. That's good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love, I mean, Genesis 15, uh, which I guess people will have read this morning. Or did I read that this morning? I read it day ahead. But anyway, yeah, this morning, have, is, did you read it this morning, Jody? Yeah. This morning? Yeah. Uh, so I've heard people say that might be the most important chapter in the Bible in terms of our understanding of the gospel. Certainly, it would be one of them. Uh, if the gospel is introduced in Genesis 3.15, it, our understanding of it takes a huge step forward in Genesis 15. We get mm. this beautiful picture of basically God saying, I will fulfill your side of the covenant mm-hmm. uh, when he passes through the pieces. He, he takes responsibility for, for our part. I think understanding Genesis 15 is one of the great keys to unlocking the Bible, right? Because mm. one of the great tensions as you're reading through the Bible is there's so, so many times the blessings of God are connected to the obedience of man. And, and, and you're like, yeah, but I can't obey. Like, and so there's like, I don't want to hear that anymore. And you're, you're waiting for God to say, all right, this is cool. I'll bless you despite the fact that you don't obey me, but he doesn't, he doesn't lower the bar. He just says, I'll do your part for you. I will Mm -hmm. come and I will, I will obey perfectly. I'll uphold your end of the deal. And I will unlock and unleash all these blessings. And they will come into the world, just as I said, they would come through an obedient mm-hmm. humanity. And you're just like, ah, oh, so good. And, and of course, that, you know, that, that finally lands on Christ, who, who keeps our side of the deal. Yeah, love Genesis 15. Love the Abrahamic story. It is, it's a picture book of faith. Thanks for getting us started on that. Uh, we also, we need to move faster now. We spent so much time in Genesis, but I, I guess I would say that's pretty wise because if you don't understand Genesis, you're not going to understand the rest of the Bible. So if we can help you understand what's going on in Genesis, everything else should come quicker anyway. Uh, we This past week, we finished the book of Ezra and started up in the book of Nehemiah. In a minute, I'll give a, a little intro to the book of Nehemiah just because I did Ezra last week. So that seems to make sense. Uh, but before we do that, uh, just tell me rapid fire. Give me give me 30 seconds of what you loved about the book of Ezra. And then I'm going to throw the hard, nasty bit at the end at you for pastoral reflection. And then we'll move on into Nehemiah. For me, the thing that I that jumped out to me this time through was just the ending and this kind of the nature of corporate repentance and what it looked like. And and just how, you know, the leaders needed to the leaders had become corrupted and had to take a stand. You know, that line at the end where it says and you, I could hear this eerie music that it was discovered that some of the priests also yeah. had married for him. And I'm just, just like, oh, snap, you know, even they did it. Yeah. And so it's just like the leaders had to lead the way with repentance and conviction. And I thought, yeah, that just jumped out to me. I thought, oh, that's good. That's needed. Yeah. Anyone else? Uh, anything you love about Ezra before we move into the hard part of the bet at the end? Yeah, that the word of the Lord would be fulfilled. Uh, verse one, uh, God stirs up Cyrus through Jeremiah's words. You know, God's words do not fall uh, to the ground and they are fulfilled in God's timing. You know, I, I think that's a good les- lesson in patience for us too. You see stops and starts and delays in Ezra. Mm. And even this whole idea of the word of God being at work through um, through Haggai and Zechariah, when the work stops, they the work gets started up again because God stirs up the people through the prophetic word being spoken 
And um, so I think that's great encouragement. God's word comes to pass. He uses pagans. He uses Cyrus. He uses his people and he gets his people moving. Mm. Nice. Why do you want to throw anything in there? Yeah, just I maybe really briefly that I I find Ezra and Nehemiah interesting that it there's an echo to the future in that so few people really seem to return. It's it's almost disappointing if you think about it. Um, And it reminds me so much of Mark one, how it opens up with that new Exodus passage. There's something new is about to happen. That's good. Well, I've alluded now a couple of times to the really hard ending of Ezra. Ezra might be the hardest landing uh, in in all the Bible. Now it probably would be helpful for our first time Bible readers to know that originally Ezra and Nehemiah were one book. So that Mm -hmm. really hard landing at the end of Ezra is, is an accident as it were of, of our modern arrangement. Um, If you were to, smush Ezra and Nehemiah together as they originally were, and then that hard landing is, is somewhat erased. But it it's it's a hard landing regardless, whether you meet it in the middle of a bigger book or at the end of a smaller book. Uh, the book of Ezra ends with this mass divorce. It might be the hardest, hardest chapter in the Old Testament to wrap your heart around, not your head. But so basically the story goes like this. Um, as everybody knows, Israel got into trouble originally in uh, in large part due to these weird mixed marriages that that happened. The high water mark kind of in the, the history of the monarchy is the, the David and Solomon era. And then, uh, you know, the Queen of Sheba is coming in 1 King 10. Uh, and you almost feel like this could be it. Like maybe Solomon is Jesus. Maybe he's the Messiah that we've been waiting for, the son of David. And maybe this is the kingdom of God. The Gentiles from the far ends of the earth are coming. Uh, to, 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 to hear wisdom from Zion. And you think this, this could be it. And, and then the very next words in 1 Kings 11 are now Solomon loved many foreign women along with the daughter of Pharaoh. And then they list them all. These are the very people God said, you shall not enter in a marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn your way, your heart away after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love. And it lists them, 700 wives, 300 concubines. His wives turned away his heart. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of his father David. So that is literally the TSN turning point in in the Old Testament narrative. From the absolute high point begins this descent now that ends in exile. So Everybody had been reflecting on that. Everybody had been learning that. And then all of a sudden the people come to Ezra and they're like, they, they say that we've, we've repeated the, the tragic error. We've not learned from our own history. The only thing that history teaches us is that nobody learns anything from history. And, and Ezra 9, 3, 4 says, as soon as I heard this, I tore my garment and my cloak and pulled hair from my head and beard and sat appalled. Then all who trembled at the words of the God of Israel because of the faithlessness of the returned exiles gathered around me while I sat appalled until the evening sacrifice. So Ezra almost falls into a coma when he hears this. He just cannot believe. There's no way this actually happened, but it did. And, and as you alluded to, Rob, the priests were leading the way in, in this. And, and so then uh, Ezra uh, commands everybody to put away these foreign wives. Mm. And there's a mass divorce. And the very last verse in Ezra is Ezra 10, 44. All these, because they list them, they list everybody, uh, everybody's outed who did this. All these had married foreign women and some of the women had even born children. Hmm. So there's, there's a mass divorce. 
there's mass fallout among the, the children. And, and you come to the end of that chapter and like, what am I supposed to do with that? So I'm, I'm turning that over to you. That's, that's why we've gathered these great experts to help our Bible readers. A Bible reader who, who read that earlier this week and wondered, what in the world am I supposed to do with that? Help them out. What, what should they do? Well, I'll take a shot at it. Um, not every narrative is prescriptive. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes as an important Bible lesson, uh, sometimes the Bible describes things that happen, um, but it doesn't mean that we're commanded to do the same in them. Um, if, if someone wants to justify from this that, well, I can divorce my unbelieving wife because that's what Ezra commanded people to do, then by the same logic, we can look to Nehemiah 13.25 and pull people's beards out and uh, punch people as well. So just because it describes that it happened doesn't mean that it's commanding us to do that. We need to keep the whole biblical teaching. We need to under, we got to read scripture from start to beginning and keep what does the Bible say about divorce and about this and we know that Jesus did not condone divorce. Matthew 5:32, Matthew 19, we know that. We know Paul doesn't condone divorce. We know in fact Paul explicitly commands women who have married and they become believers and their husbands are still unbelievers if their husbands will have them he says stay married uh don't divorce them so um paul commands us not to marry unbelievers yes so we shouldn't be unequally yoked we shouldn't be marrying people who aren't um do not believe but if we are married and we come to faith and our spouse doesn't um we're not told to divorce them like we see here so again Specific time and context in this situation, there was a purifying work that God was doing. But just because it says it, uh, or just because it illustrates it in history, doesn't mean necessarily that we're meant to follow it. And we have other teaching that we lean on. Yeah, that's a that's a, a helpful distinction that some things are descriptive and not necessarily prescriptive. You know, one of the ways I always illustrate that is say, you know, at the end of the book of Judges, there's a story about a whole bunch of young men who, you know, go to a pagan festival and they all kidnap a bride for themselves. That happened. Yeah. And the Bible tells us about that, but that is, that's not telling you that that's a good approach to Christian dating. Uh, now like, yeah. that's descriptive, not necessarily prescriptive. So I think that that's a helpful thing. Uh, I think there are principles here that are enduring. Mm-hmm. Principle is that if you disregard what God says about marriage, the fallout will be catastrophic. Yep. Um, I, I don't see that principle being mitigated in, in any sense. And, and, and then I think you, you see, you mentioned first Corinthians seven. I think you see Paul addressing that, like that mm. mixed, mixed marriage is, is, is a real tragedy. And sometimes divorce becomes inevitable. Never because mm-hmm. you know, Paul acknowledges that he says, if they're willing to stay with you, stay with them. Yes. Sometimes they won't. Yep. And so, so sometimes that difference in faith is going to destroy your marriage, whether you want it to or not. Which is why we're commanded. Hey, don't. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Don't unequally yoke yourself yeah anybody else want to take a stab at that or, or help help the first time bible reader navigate that you know back to what Wyatt said about how so few return i don't know if there was forty-two thousand or something but you know from hundreds of thousands to maybe a few million to forty-two thousand, those who returned was was a pretty small number and um obviously a lot of years had gone by and we don't know exactly what they were taught while they were in exile but uh, ezra did know he did remember he was a faithful man so he he understood the heart of God. He knew the holiness of God. And I think there's a there's a lesson here that it's easy to forget the holiness of God. That we obviously these people were trifling with sin, whether they didn't know or whether they disregarded 
they did not remember the Solomon story. They did not remember that turning point that was really the catastrophic beginning of what would be a catastrophic ending. But someone did, Ezra did. And, um, you know, so, so oh, for a tender heart who understands the holiness of God and understands the seriousness of sin mm -hmm. and calls people to account. I mean, that's that prophetic warning. Uh, these, these radical actions remind us that, you know, we'd say, boy, these poor little ones, was this really worth it? These poor women, what happened? Were they exiled? Were they like Hagar that was sent off into the woods somewhere? Well, we don't really know the story, but there's, a, there's an ultimate allegiance and ultimate priority that, that God's word has to be obeyed and that sin has to be dealt with. And, you know, um, enter into relationships in a godly way so as uh, not to have to do this on the back end of things, do it right. And love God above pleasure and love God above convenience. Those are some things that I see. Very good. Good, good. Well, uh, just for the sake of time, I'm going to give us a real brief introduction to Nehemiah. We, we as I said, this, Ezra comes to, to an end with a thud. Uh, it would have been the middle of the original uh, book. It's the end of ours. But then we transition into Nehemiah. And we meet this other character. Uh, obviously, the stories are, uh, are related. I think I said last week that if, uh, if you wanted to think of this as a unit in Scripture, it's really First and Second Chronicles, then Ezra and Nehemiah. And then if you bought the expansion pack on the story, you, you'd get the prophets, uh, you'd, you'd get Haggai, uh, Zechariah, Malachi. And then if you bought the super expansion pack, you get Esther. Esther's like a bonus story. It actually happens inside the, the narrative. It's, it's a bonus account of what was going on with some people back still in Persia. It actually happens a generation before the Nehemiah story uh, and probably serves to explain how it is that Nehemiah as a believing Jew and as an out, like he, he was not hiding his Jewishness how he came to occupy such an important position in the Persian government. You remember at the story of Ezra, Mordecai the Jew is appointed the prime minister, the prime minister of Persia. So it's, it's even possible that Nehemiah was appointed by Mordecai or by Mordecai's successor. But either way, it is further evidence of Persia's preferential relationship towards the Jewish people. I mentioned last week that uh, Persia in general, who took over from the Babylonians in 539, they defeated the Babylonians, took over their empire. They had a completely different policy towards subject people than had the Babylonians and the, the Assyrians before them. In general, they preferred people to go home, uh, worship however they want. And as long as they pray for the king and pay their taxes, everybody's happy. Uh, so it wasn't just the Jews that were sent home. But uh, historians have long had a bit of an interest in the strange preferential treatment that the Jews did mm -hmm. receive. In fact, there's a historical record of when the Persians took over the administration of Egypt, they destroyed a bunch of the Egyptian temples and, and, and put pressure on Egyptian religion, but did nothing to disturb the massive Jewish presence in Egypt uh, or the centers of worship there. Uh, Jewish temples appeared to be treated with, with preferential treatment, Jewish centers of worship. So the Jews obviously read that as providence. God had raised up this pagan empire that was particularly favorable to them as a people and then ended up paying for the rebuilding of their temple in uh, Jerusalem and their, and their city and their nation as a whole. Uh, the main character here is a guy named Nehemiah. He was some kind of chamberlain in the house, over the household of Artaxerxes, King Artaxerxes. Artaxerxes uh, was the king who sent uh, Ezra out. Uh, Ezra was sent out kind of as a pastor, as a religious leader. Uh, but then news got back that the city itself, its organization, its defenses was, was uh, a bit of a disaster. And so Nehemiah, this is about 13 years later, asked for permission to go and, and basically be the governor. Uh, and he did. He served two terms as governor. 
uh, and uh, he, he was mainly focused on rebuilding the city, rebuilding the defenses of the city. And so this interesting story overlaps with Ezra. It's a reminder, one of the main reminders I would say in this story is that it takes more than just a good preacher to affect a wholesale reformation. Mm. Ezra was a great preacher. We've already talked about that. He, he was doing great work on the spiritual side, um, but for the reformation to take root, there also needed to be a builder. Uh, there needed to be a politician. Uh, you know, one, one is tempted to transpose this story into a Reformation key and said, yeah, Luther was great. Luther has that great quote about how, you know, all he did was teach and preach the word. And then uh, he and Philip and Amsdorf sat around drinking beer while the word of God did the work <laughs> of God. And we all ch chuckle at that and enjoy that story. But the reality is Frederick the Wise played a pretty important role too, right? And there were a number of other leaders and builders that, that were a a part of, of how that took took hold. And so that's one of the things we're being int uh, introduced to in the Nehemiah story is the necessity of a plurality of leaders and a plurality of gifts for a reformation to truly take hold. Mm. Anything I missed that you want to throw in there in terms of Nehemiah? Well, and even just chapter three, like I, when we preach through this as a church, you know, you're very tempted to skip through this section because just a bunch of people building stuff, but it just shows <laughs> like all these people from Israel and there's high leaders and people who really and then there's people who refuse to do any work and who don't want to get their hands dirty and just even there like i like the guy whose daughters do all the hard work yeah <laughs> <laughs> i've got four daughters and i thought goodness gracious i can't yeah, imagine back yeah i'll just i'm gonna have a nap here <laughs> the house yeah and i think that's just a great reminder for the people in our church i get like it's a discipleship yeah. thing we want to enable people for the work of ministry you see that in nehemiah 3 right on all right, well, let's, uh, let's jump forward into our New Testament texts. I uh, want to have a little bit of a conversation out of Matthew 9 uh, that I think will actually lay a little bit of groundwork for us when we get into, into Acts. That's one of the great things about the RMM. It has you in four different places, and so you see all these connections between the different parts of the Bible. It's part of the, part of the beauty. In Matthew 9, verses 16 to 17, Jesus says something very important, a little bit controversial. He says, no one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. For the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. So Jesus, you know, at first glance, it, it, it appears Jesus is making a comment here about how the new wine of the Spirit, the new wine of the new covenant, is going to require new forms. You can't just pour the Jesus wine into the forms of first century Judaism. Uh, that would explode. That would ruin first century. That would destroy first century Judaism. And it would corrupt and, and obstruct what Jesus is trying to accomplish in the new covenant. So why it raises some interesting questions I'd love for you to get us started with. First of all, how new is the new covenant? Um, and, and, and how much of the form of old Judaism ought to be preserved? That's, that's really the... The, the thrust of what we need to get our heads around here. Sounds like a easy question. Nice simple uh, question for you. I don't believe yeah. there's any confusion around this issue. Never. Um, I think in, I always like to go to the simplest thing, I guess, but in simplest terms, I mean, Jesus is what is new. Not that Jesus didn't pre-exist. I mean, there was always the word of God. Uh, Jude said he led uh, people out of the Exodus. P um, Paul talks about him being the rock and so on. But Jesus is new in that he clarifies, fulfills, complete capstones does everything in terms of fulfillment of what the old testament points towards so i think what's new is is jesus and so the question is how does this actually work out because that sounds great i mean it's the bible 
answer that everyone gives in Sunday schools is Jesus. So how does it work out? I, th- I think actually Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, is meant to answer this question in part. But essentially, God created everything to point to something better, lasting, and eternal. So I, I, I rolled out three categories. If you've got promises in the Old Testament, Jesus fulfills them. If you've got patterns in the Old Testament, Jesus fulfills them. And if you've got persons of God talking in the Old Testament, Jesus is probably one of them. So in Psalm 110, my Lord spoke to the Lord, or the opposite, I can't remember offhand. It's the Son of God and the Father conversing. So in other words, the newness part is that Jesus is the fulfiller, completer, enactor, the doer of all the patterns and promises and persons that the Old Testament speaks about. You could go on and on about the, listing all the specifics, but I won't, I won't do that given time and also because it could take a million years. But that's kind of the big picture of what's new. I think then when you contrast it with what's old and in the language of Hebrews and what's passing away, I think that's Hebrews 8.13, is, is this. What is passing away is passing away. <laughs> that is the institutions that were temporal and never meant to be eternal. Those things like, for example, uh, much of the Mosaic law, while it's still entirely valid as wisdom and prophecy and for us in every way, was meant for the th- theocratic state of Israel. And so it's the building a parapet on top of your house is still entirely useful to know as a principle because we want to have people safe in our household. But it's not necessarily a law code as a local law in our city. That'd be the distinction I would make. Uh, the temple, well, the temple is not here anymore because Jesus is the temple. In his, in his body, he is the actual union of divinity and humanity. <laughs> and by the spirit, we are part of that spiritual body. So that's Ephesians and John 2. Hmm. So you know, the temple, in terms of its temporal nature, is gone. But the temple, in terms of its real eternal thing, is still here. That old temple... The reason there's temples in the world is because Jesus is the temple. It's that order. Uh, you could go through all these different categories. If you go to Hebrews, uh, maybe this one's slightly too controversial, but you talk about the land in Hebrews 11. Uh, Hebrews says, if they had gone out from, I mean, if God actually promised them a geographical land, he wouldn't have called them from one place to another. That's not the point. They were actually looking for something, a city not made with human hands. Yeah. And then you see that at the end of chapter 11, it's weird. You see the saints were not made perfect apart from us which is like an odd phrase in Hebrews 12 says Jesus went before us and he made those saints perfect. And now they dwell in the heavenly Zion uh, in the end of chapter 12. So even I think some of the promises like that, the geographical land space promise, according to Hebrews 11 and 12 is meant to point us towards the heavenly Zion, that city of God, not made with human hands. One that can't be shaken and destroyed that because it's temporal. So in some, what's new is Jesus and Jesus is the fulfillment of all the things that are meant to be temporal and fulfilled in him. What is passing away is what is passing away. What's no longer here. That's good. I think it was last week uh, we we used that quote from D.A. Carson. When, when in doubt, quote quote Carson is a. Real <laughs> is that Carson's quote? What's when that? In doubt. Well, I, quote I, itself. Yeah, when in doubt, qu- quote me. Yeah, I just made that up. But uh, you know, Carson says whatever is prophetic is provisional. And he says, you know, in in Matthew, he was quoting there uh, or commenting there on Matthew five seventy to twenty, where where. Uh, Jesus talks about the law and the prophets, right? The law and the prophets prophesied, um, you, you know, and it, it, later in Matthew, we're told they prophesied until John the Baptist. So there's a sense in, in which all of that stuff is, is, was provisional. It, it was intended to point us to Jesus, that which is new. And now that that new stuff is here, you're right. Uh, things pass, things that were provisional have passed away and are passing away. Give me one sentence just to make sure I'm not misunderstood. I think the entire Old Testament is for us today, right. just under the new covenant. 
And I think if you look at the early church, they preached Christ and did theology from the scriptures, which were the, the Old Testament. Yeah, and, and it, good to be clear and careful here, because I think an argument can be made that most of the heresies or egregious errors in, in Christendom can be traced back to getting it wrong one way or the other on this very issue. Hmm. So it's super helpful to be clear here. It, in, in that spirit, I've, I've got a great quote here from Michael Green. He says this, Jesus is clear that his coming marks a discontinuity with all that. And then he, in brackets, or sorry, this, these are my brackets, all the forms and practices of Judaism, the, the, the wine skins, as it were. Back to Michael Green, the old skins cannot contain the new wine he is bringing. Old regulations about ceremonial defilement cannot stand before the joy of forgiveness, fellowship, excitement, and new direction, which the coming of the kingdom inaugurates. So I, I think that that's, that's helpful. We're definitely not saying, you know, don't read the Old Testament. We, we've just spent most of our podcast uh, talking here about the Old Testament. We're saying from a forms perspective, there's a sense in which these, these forms point to Jesus, but then are surpassed. Like when the sun comes out, the, the you know, the stars uh, are no longer seen, not because they're not there anymore, but because something bigger, something brighter has, has come. Mm. All right, before we leave Matthew, I want to zoom in uh, on something in, out of Matthew 10. And let's do this one real quickly, because we've already hit this theme a little bit in Genesis 11. But, but Matthew 10, 34, this was one of those connections that fired in my brain from the RMM. When you're reading in multiple places, I, my brain made a connection here. Matthew 10, 34 to 36, Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a father against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. So again, we're seeing unity is, is generally a good thing, but not always a good thing. In the same way that God was the author of disunity in Genesis 11, here Jesus is the author of disunity in Matthew 10. So just help us get our heads around this. Maybe somebody give me a, a soundbite or a, or a little bit of help. How should we feel about unity? Uh, it's, it's good most of the time, not all the time. Help me understand that. Yeah, maybe quick soundbite. You read verse 37. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. What Jesus is saying is I brought sword because you got to lay it all down for me. Right. And we're unified around Christ and the gospel and the truth of Christ and the gospel. Who is God? How has he committed us to live? So there's a person that we're unified around. There's a clear, specific Thing that we're unified around and it's jesus and if we're not willing to follow jesus the sword divides us oh, that's great anyone want to add to that that's really good yeah i mean unity at all costs in terms of what what is your ultimate value is is cohesiveness and uh, tolerance and unity the thing that you value above everything else because if if that's the case then you compromise other things to make that happen and uh christ is very controversial this is the point that he's saying that you know, to love Jesus and to put him first in your life is going to be costly mm. and it's going to come with opposition and it's going to come with rejection. Clearly that's what he's saying, stating in the gospel. That's what you see in the early part of the book of Acts. So, you know, you can't, you can't have unity uh, all the time. If Jesus is number one, unity is not going to be number one. Unity might be number two or somewhere down the line, but re, uh, prioritizing who you love first, uh, everything else will have to fall after Jesus is number one. Mm. Good. I agree with all that. And I would add that sometimes Jesus talks like the Proverbs, because in Luke 9 50, he says, do not stop them. Whoever's not against you is for you. 
right? So meaning, uh, I think this is exactly right, but also I think you take the whole sweep of what Jesus says, and there is a distinction between unity and disunity and how it's applied, and it's more proverbial in a lot of ways. Yeah, that's good. Expect. So you can over-apply this passage, can't you? Yeah. Uh, you can over-apply. So I'm agreeing with her saying, I'm just, I'm giving a little bit of the other side. No, that's it. really, really helpful. You, you referenced the, the passage, it's also in Mark 9, where um, you know, the disciples come to Jesus and they're like, hey, we saw some guys casting out demons in your name, but they weren't of us. And she's like, well, who cares? They don't have to be of you as long as they're for me. Uh, <laughs> and, and so he, Jesus has this kind of broader understanding of Christian unity than, uh, than his own disciples at this point in Mark 9. But the, but the principle here is it's, it's unity around Christ. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and in order to achieve unity around Christ, we, we may actually have to have disunity in some other areas of our life. Yeah. And just to even tag on to what Wyatt said, like John 17, the high priestly prayer, he's talking about unity. He's praying for it, that we might be unified, but as he and the father is what, you know, it's again, centered around the person of Christ and that Trinitarian relationship. Yeah. Well, well, sir. All right. Our last uh, text, I feel like we're, we're back on schedule now. So, uh, (laughs) but now we're back on schedule. Um, want to end obviously with acts. I want to make sure we hit each of the four columns that we were in. Acts 10 may be one of the most important passages in the New Testament, uh, not in terms of, you know, your personal life as a believer, but I mean, in terms of understanding how the Bible goes together and understanding how the Old Covenant and the New Covenant go together. It's one of those, uh, we were, in our preaching workshop today, we were talking about how sometimes uh, there are issues where if you can unclog this issue, everything flows better in in your theological system. And this is one of the clog issues. Um, What exactly is new about the new covenant? How do the new and the old covenants go together? And this was obviously a long time development in, in, in Peter's understanding. Uh, this, this story takes place in Acts 10, meaning we're a long way removed from Acts, Acts 2 now. Uh, there's been a dispersion of, of the Christian movement. There's been spreading among non-Jews. So we're a long way into the story, and Peter is still just wrapping his head around this. So in Acts 10, he has a, he has a vision. Uh, he's up on the roof. And uh, he's, he's hungry, and while dinner is being prepared, he, he uh, falls into a trance, has this vision. A sheet is lowered. It's filled with all kinds of animals. And, uh, and in verse 13, a voice comes to him saying, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord. By the way, just, let's just appreciate the fact that only Peter of all the apostles would have a vision from God and three times say, by no means, yeah. Lord. Bless his, heart. Bless his heart. <laughs> by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times. And the thing was taken up at once to heaven. All right, so let's do another round of rapid fire. Here are my questions. Is the dietary code from the Old Testament still in effect? What was the purpose of the dietary code? Uh, If the dietary code is no longer in in effect, do do we apply that to the Ten Commandments? How does that work? Uh, Are the Ten Commandments still in effect? How much has passed away here? What is the role of the Old Testament law for the New Testament believer? All right, go. Again, super easy questions, I'm sure. Um, okay. So for me, I would say a lot, you know, food, clothing, diet laws, of the old Testament were about God creating a, a unique culture among within Israel that was unique among the nations. And there's a lot of verses even in here that talk about how God's creating a people to be a light, to be different, to be set apart, a holy priest, a holy nation that's supposed to look 
very different. You know, Deuteronomy 4, 6 says, keep them and do these laws that they will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who, when they hear about these statutes, will say, surely this great nation is wise and understanding and understanding people. So a lot of these laws created in the context of this government of Israel, this people, this culture of Israel um, was really to make them unique. Um, but what Acts 10 tells us is that there is no more separation now. In this new covenant, there is this no more separation between Jew and Gentile, clean and unclean people. That doesn't exist. Uh, don't call what God calls clean, unclean. That's what he's saying. And so because of Christ, the doors of the kingdom are thrown open wide. And the, Israel was always meant you know, to be a missional people, but specifically now, this is really hit on, you know, Galatians 3, 7, 9, you know, those who are of faith are the sons of Abraham. This is the clarity that now is coming um, to Peter. Um, Jesus himself says in Mark 7, this is another place where Jesus clarifies this, nothing can defile a person going into him, but only things that come out of a person are what defile him. Yeah, and, and in verse uh, 19 in Mark 7, there's an editorial comment. Like yeah. in my, in my uh, version, it's in brackets. brackets. Thus he declared all foods clean. Yeah. You know, and, and if it's true, which church history seems to indicate is true, that the gospel of Mark is really the gospel of Peter, that Peter dictated it to Mark, his scribe who wrote it down. Then this is Peter inserting what he learned in Acts 10 yeah. into the gospel story. Yeah. Thus he declared all foods clean. That's yeah. it. Yeah. 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 So So Jesus here, you know, I think that what we're seeing is, clarifying that the whole point of food laws was to separate Israel from the Gentiles, but that separation is no longer needed. And it starts to become a problem in Antioch and it starts to become a problem in a lot of these churches that we see in Acts. Um, but Jesus has now sent his people to the nations, to the Gentiles. All right. So dietary code no longer in effect. You've answered two questions. And what was the purpose then of the dietary code? You, you've basically said boundary marker. Does anybody want to add to that? I think that is absolutely correct. Uh, anybody want to add to boundary marker as the purpose of the dietary law? I think I would agree then to specify further that the, I think the basic logic in Leviticus is death and life. You're closer to God when you're closer to life. The tree of life's in the, in the tabernacle. When you touch something dead or unclean, you go outside the camp. And a lot of the dietary laws are meant to teach them and then us death and life, pure and impure. And so I think that's a big part of it. But mm -hmm. with Christ, there's a huge transformation about death and life. He brings in the new covenant and a new way of seeing the world and of accessing life. So I don't think the dietary law code is in effect because of the gospel, but I do think Christians like in Acts 15 can, for the sake of others' consciences, follow certain dietary laws. Sure. You, you mentioned a, a word I want to highlight and come back to. You, you talk about teaching. Uh, so I would say the two main things that tend to be said about the purpose of the dietary code is, uh, number one, that it was a boundary marker. Uh, I don't know if they'd say number one or number two, but that's certainly one of them that said. And then the other is that it, it had an educational function, that God was God was teaching the Jews and the nations through through this, this strange system. So Calvin said that, for example, he said the ceremonial law was a way of educating the Jews. This is how it seemed good to the Lord to train them while they were in their infancy uh, until that time of fullness when he would manifest the totality of his wisdom to the earth and show forth the truth of those things which he had formerly represented only obscurely and in figures. And Luther took the same line in Luther's sermon on Galatians 4, 1 to 7. He, he referred to these sorts of things as a kind of tutor 
uh, that we were we were to be educated by, but not uh, restricted by uh, as as spirit filled um, born again believers. He would he would say, yeah, it's a, it's a tutor, but we're we're no longer subject to the authority of the tutor. Um, we we now operate in our full maturity. Yeah. I like that. Now, so nobody's answered the question then, if the dietary code is not in effect, what about the Ten Commandments? Are they not in effect? I would just say that the Ten Commandments, most people say, are a representation of God's eternal law. The, the tricky part is the Sabbath command, which seems to be part of the, cer- the so-called ceremonial law. Mm-hmm. Um, in, in my view, the entire Old Testament is valid today. So I would say the Ten Commandments still are too. They're a representation of God's eternal law. The way that you apply them, I think, is through uh, wisdom, through prophecy, and I think even quite directly, I mean, I think everybody knows the eternal law of God is don't murder. Right. You're using the phrase eternal law of God. Uh, mm-hmm. Are you using that in the sense that the reformers use the phrase natural law? A little bit. It, eternal law is the, the bigger category. Natural law would be a part of it. Eternal law is according to God's nature. What is true according to who God is? God is life, not death. Therefore, murder is wrong. Yeah. Natural so law would I'll be a subcategory. The, the reformers answer this question. And, which is not to say different or wrong than yours. Well, it's different, uh, but not necessarily better or worse. I mean, to say. <laughs> well, it's probably better if it's the reformers. <laughs> well, here's what Calvin Let's says. be fair here. It's because Calvin says it doesn't make it right. But here's what he says. He says, now the law of God, which we call the moral law, is acknowledged to be none other than the testimony of natural law and of that conscience, which is engraved in the souls of men by God, and so the whole content of equity is prescribed by it. And then, so what, what Calvin is saying then is saying, you know, the Ten Commandments are actually an expression of, of natural law. It's, it's, mm-hmm. it's in essence, hardwired into the, uh, the, the moral code of the universe. It's, it's part of the DNA. And, uh, and he says it, it, it shows up in the conscience. But then he says, but the application is different nation to nation. So meaning uh, there's a, there's, Take, take the Sabbath law. There's a principle of one day of rest in seven and at one day of worship to reflect on all, all of God's goodness, a pause and all that, and, and to not pursue that in a way that puts an undue burden on, on the poor and, and, and whatnot. But whether your nation identifies Friday as the common pause day or Saturday as the common pause day, or Calvin would be indifferent to these things. In fact, he was quite critical of those who said that the specific mosaic application of the natural law to all societies, he actually said that it's considered that stupid or insensible. Uh, So is that a fair sense that there's there's the, the application, how it was applied in the theocracy of Israel is not to be universalized, but the, but the principles are nothing less than natural law or eternal law. Yeah, and that's how I would answer four, because I think a lot of these these um, Old Testament laws, especially when you're talking about how did this theocracy work, they're they're still helpful in the sense that we understand these kind of the heartbeat of God and how he wants his people to look and to come across and to act in the sight of the nations. And so that's that is the practical implication of these things. We're not living in a theocracy, but what we can do is when we look to these laws about, you know, don't let your neighbor fall off your home or else you're responsible to him. There are principles here. There's a heart of Christ and the heart of God that shines through. And that's what we should be looking for in these texts rather than trying to turn them into law, which we know the law kills and Jesus came to fulfill the law. And he gives us again, the perfect way to accomplish these things. Yeah, I mean, Romans 13, 10, obviously, is the, the classic statement of that. Yeah. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. So 
my understanding would would be, and, and you guys jump in and correct and color that. Um, my understanding would, would be that the law is an excellent tutor. The Old Testament law is an excellent tutor for us. So we should consult that to get the to to begin to to sense the rhythms of of how God's holiness interacts uh, and, and and should be manifested in our relationships with one another and to God. Once once we come to Christ. Uh, and, and, and we're believers and we're under the Lordship of Christ, once we're filled with the Holy Spirit, and, and, and in essence now, as, as Luther would say, acting as sons, not as slaves, or more primarily Paul in Galatians 4, 1 to 7, mm. then we're not under the law as an obligation, but, but we should still attend to it as a tutor. And, and we should now operate in the law of love. We should be asking the question, based on everything I've learned, how should I love God? And how should I love my neighbor in this situation? Is that's that's be my understanding, correct or color? Maybe just a color on that is the law is a great tutor, and we're terrible students, and so is so is Israel, yeah. <laughs> and that's why Jesus, you know, that's the point of Jesus comes and helps us actually understand, like you're saying, what the law, yeah, is is meaning, and appreciating when you understand the law, you're appreciating the perfections of Christ, how He fulfilled all those things perfectly, and it just causes us to. Uh, grow in our esteem for him and our understanding of how, how wonderful he was and his perfections and his holiness. Yeah, well said. Why do you want to correct or color any of that? I, li- I like it all. Like- I, I, I like Calvin's third use. I think the law is a good tutor. I think it's for our sanctification. I, am, I think it's very important to use the Old Testament in the Christian life directly. Good. All right, well, let's leave it there. I, I think that's such an important conversation. As I said, I think that's one of the main... Uh, clog issues. Uh, there, there are a handful of issues. You know, what's the place of good works, and how does that relate to our salvation before or after? How, how does that work? Uh, God's sovereignty, human responsibility. How does that all fit together? And then, how do these covenants go together? What's the place of the law in a in a, a new covenant about grace? How does that work? Some of these issues, if you can clear these up for Bible readers, dozens of other passages mm. immediately slot into place. So I think that was mm. worth our time. And uh, that is all the time that we have for today. Uh, We'll be back on the 21st and we'll go uh, through again the the last seven days readings. Before we go, though, however, just uh, I'm going to ask Pastor Jody if you pray for us and pray specifically our dear friend, uh, Pastor Stephen Bray, who was actually scheduled to be with us today as a regular guest uh, on the the Going Deeper program, had uh, a bit of a health issue, a bit of a a heart issue uh, earlier this week and uh, is is by the grace of God, recovering really well. It's got the all clear, is resting up at home. Um, but just just a fresh reminder that these are stressful times. This is a hard time to be a pastor. I'm sure this is a hard time to be a congregant. Um, but we just need to be praying for each other. And, and I wonder, Pastor Jody, if you could pray for all of us, uh, pastors, panel, uh, people listening in, but, but in particular, our brother, Stephen. Will do. Yeah, I'd love to do that. Let's pray. Father, I thank you today for your word, Lord, the truth of it, and that it is the promise for us to to hold on to by faith. And I thank you for those that love your word, that obeyed your word as we've been talking about, that understood it and transmitted to us. And Father, help us today to to live it and in understanding it, to know you more, and then to make you known in our lives. Thank you, Lord, for each of the brothers here and for every person who's listening, Lord, who who stands in awe of you and who exalts your word and who desires to grow deeper in their understanding of, of how to understand you and how to live it out. And so we pray your blessings in every person listening that Lord, the old and the new Testament would be understood 
and Lord, that ultimately we would see Christ in everything and we would see mm. him as the perfect fulfiller of the law, our perfect salvation, our ark of righteousness, our, our salvation. And Lord, we thank you for our brother Stephen and Lord know he's a, a part of what would have been happening here today and, and he'll be watching this. And uh, we pray for your strength in his recovery. We thank you, Lord, for a, a small tweak. Thank you that what uh, he faced in his health was not more serious and that it was a, a quick reminder that he needs to pay attention. And Lord, that's just a reminder for all of us, Father, that we, as much as we would love to go full steam, uh, Lord, we are frail and we're finite, we're human. And so remind us, Lord, to, to rest and do the things that we need to do. And yet, Lord, we also know that we live in a time, Christian leaders particularly, and and other folks too who are figuring out how to live in COVID as parents or as employees or employers. Lord, these are tough times. There's a lot of pressure, pressure on Christian leaders, pressure on people. And Lord, that affects us. And so we pray that you would lift uh, our brother's burdens and bring strength and healing to his body and help him to take the time he needs to recover. And Lord, strengthen your church as we trust in you, Father, as our roots go down deep into your word, as we trust in the power of God to Help us to persevere and to find joy. And Lord, to cast our cares upon you because you care for us. Lord, maintain the unity of your church uh, in the bond of peace. Lord, as we talked about earlier, uh, churches are struggling. Lord, there are uh, divisions in churches over COVID. And we pray that you would grow unity and help Christian leaders to, to foster that and to preach your word that pulls us together in Christ. So Lord, thank you for today. We commit it to you now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, thanks for joining us, friends. And uh, thank you, panel. God willing, as I said, we'll be back next Thursday, January 21st, for another episode of Going Deeper with the End of the Word panel. We'll see you then. Thank you.